Ephesians chapter 5. If you're just joining us, we're glad you came out to Redemption Parker this morning to worship God with us. We're in our first ever series uh, called Gospel-Centered. I'm going to read our first two verses of Ephesians 5 this morning, and I'll pray for us, and then I'll begin to unpack it. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. As I read, I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. God, we come before you now asking you to Uh, continue to reveal the gospel to us, continue to stir in us uh, affections for you. Uh, Lord, as we've sang songs now and even read your word, we're reminded of your sacrifice for us and uh, the gospel that has rescued and redeemed us, the gospel that is shaping us, and the gospel that is sending us. So God, have your way in this time. May the meditations of our hearts, the words of my lips be pleasing and honoring to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, we are uh, in week eight of nine of our first ever series called Gospel-Centered. And really, uh, what we're saying is that the gospel is what we want to be about. And so each week has been really just an appetizer of of what we we really are going to focus on, Lord willing, for however many weeks or months or years the Lord sees fit to allow us to continue to gather as Redemption Parker. And so each week as we've looked at a different thing, whether it be sanctification or or, or community or um, doing life together, or last week we looked about how, how God would have us handle our finances and otherwise, each one is really just an appetizer. And, and none of them have we really dived that deeply in yet, but hopefully in the coming months and years, we would be able to go deeper in each of these. And that's true of this message as well today. As we look at uh, marriages and families, uh, we were preparing this week and looking at this this week and just realizing there is no way I can even begin to scratch the surface. Uh, we've Jennifer and I have taught uh, eight-week series on marriage and family before, and we've done other seminars and, on parenting. And, and so to come up here in, in the next 25, 30 minutes to say, hey, here's what mar- gospel-centered marriages and families look like. Uh, we're just not going to get there. And, and there's going to be a lot of, you might leave here with more questions than answers. But nonetheless, we're trying to say that if the gospel shapes and, and uh, influences everything, then how should it shape and influence the most foundational uh, relationship that we have on this side of eternity? How should it shape our marriages and our families? And so that's what we're going to look at today. Now, this month... Jennifer and I celebrated our 18th anniversary. Uh, thanks for the applause. Uh, yeah. um, see, we can, we can have, I'm going to ask for some feedback today. I know we're all white, but you could say amen and all that stuff today. Uh, but you can, you can do that, really. You have full permission. But what we're going to, we celebrated 18. Now, what I love about even our, our early stages of Redemption Parker, for some of you, that's like, man, you're really old. And then for other of you, you're like, you guys are just getting started. And so I love that we can have multi-generation. If we don't have diversity by ethnicity, we can have diversity by age. So that's good. Uh, but uh, so I love that we can come to each other, at, whether you're just starting out or you've been down the road a little bit further. 
together. Uh, I hope that we can continue to do life together and learn from each other in that respect. So 18 years ago, we got married, and we were married uh, scandalously young. Uh, Jennifer was 20, and I was 23. Um, And at the time, um, you know, then going on to be missionaries and me being a pastor, uh, oftentimes when people don't know us, they ask, like, oh, how did you guys meet? Did you meet in a Bible study? I'm like, mm, how do I answer this question? No. Uh, well, what what what'd you do? Like, so you have four daughters? Yeah, yeah. You've been married 18 years? Yeah. I'm like, yes. And uh, you know, I've got four daughters. One's 19. So you just do the math on. No, no. She's she's adopted from Thailand, and so uh, that helps them. And I don't always tell them that, but uh, so we. I, I'm so grateful for God's grace in our family. And our extended family, and uh, I got my, my dad here, my stepmom, and um, my 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 other stepdad, and my mom went to be with the Lord a few years ago. Uh, but God's done a profound work in my family and my extended family. But when I was born, as long as I can remember, uh, my parents were divorced. And so uh, that's the home we grew up in. I, I grew up in Denver. Uh, I would visit my dad and stepmom in, in Kansas City each summer. And uh, we just kind of grew up with that in the air. And so as soon as, again, as early as I could remember, my mom had started dating another guy that she uh, lived with and she lived with for the next 15, 16 years. And then as uh, he kind of raised, raised me and, and was my coach and all those things. And, and then my, uh, God was drawing my mom to himself and, and she felt convicted she needed to get married. And so she did. And then within a year, he had become addicted to hardcore drugs and alcohol. And this man who had owned his own business had uh, trashed his life, had trashed his marriage. And God used all of that and all of that mess to draw me to him. Himself. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, but all that to say, the air that I was breathing, the cultural air that you and I both breathe, and the air that I was breathing in my home was not one that said, Christ is King, Christ is the Lord, marriage is about Him, by Him, and for Him. It just wasn't. And so um, I was a new believer at about age 18. And uh, just kind of exploring my faith there uh, was like the rest of my fr- friends trying to trying to meet girls wherever I could. I wasn't successful at that. I never had a girlfriend. I, I never uh, had any of that. So God spared me a, of a lot of heartache in all that. But it wasn't for lack of trying. And so. Uh, July 16th, 1996, I know that because it's one week after my 21st birthday, my friends called me up and said, hey, uh, we're going to the club downtown. Do you want to join us? And I was like, I don't really want to. Uh, thanks. They're like, no, no, come on, just come with us. I'm like, okay, I'll go to the club. Rock Island was the place. And uh, so we go down there, and it's everything you're expecting. It's, it's neon lights. It's, uh, uh, it's hot. It's sweaty. People got their glow sticks, and they're doing all that stuff. And so this is the environment I walk into. About five of my friends, and uh, we're, we're dancing. Um, I would dance, but um, maybe we can have a dance-off later. But um, we're dancing, and uh, in walks a group of uh, five or six girls. And, and I see this girl. She's six foot tall, and I'm six five. And I'm like, this, this is good. Now, how in the world do I... I 
engage in a conversation. How do you even engage in a conversation when you have to like scream in their ear to be able to say something? And so I didn't know how to do that. But uh, another story for another time is that some of my friends knew some of Knew, knew some of those girls, and so they weren't like, hey, Mark, come meet this girl. No, they were trying their own ways and, and all that stuff, and, and so I'm like, how in the world am I going to meet this girl? I've got to meet this girl, and so uh, she uh, finally is, is, is walking out to get a glass of water or something, and I, and I see it. I, I know she's, she's wearing a little cross necklace in the club, <laughs> and um, <laughs> And I say, oh, there's a connection. Hey, uh, nice necklace. And she walks on. And later she tells me, she's like, she thought I was mocking her. Well, you're going to wear a cross necklace into a place like this? A nice necklace. Thank you very much. And so uh, she goes off and uh, comes back. And, and again, some of my friends know her, some of her friends. And so they're talking. And so since they're talking, I'm like, hey, so hi. Um, I, I don't even remember what I said. And so uh, we began to dance, maybe. I don't know. Maybe we could do that. No, not now. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we go off to the side and we get, begin to talk. And uh, she also comes from when she was eight years old. Her parents, after 25 years, were divorced. And they said to little eight-year-old Jennifer, hey, who do you want to live with? Uh, in, in her mind, that means, who do you love more? And, and she's like, well, I'll live with both of you. And so one week she would live in Denver, and then the next week she would go out to Far East in Parker and, and live there. And she said to me, I never want to live in Parker. Uh, and so, um, but that was the air that she breathed. And the, her parents and, and my mom, and the, the, the mantra in our home was date around, get around, experience as many relationships as possible. Don't make the same mistakes that we made. This is the path for success for you. Just date around. And so when I met her that night and she went home in the next morning, uh, and she's a, it was a strong, independent, um, feminist woman, and uh, she uh, wakes up and her mom says, how was last night? And she says, I think I met the man I'm going to marry, which, which is kind of stalkerish. She didn't tell me that for many years. But, uh, but what she, she did not like that. She didn't like that. She was, see, she had just graduated high school, and she was headed off to school in, in Indiana to a private school, this beautiful young girl who's been taught her whole life to be her own woman and to date around, and now she thinks she may have met the man she's going to marry. That doesn't make sense. So um, she, we, we kind of dated a little bit that summer, and, and I kind of just figured she would go off to college and date around, and, and that would be the end of it. Um, and in fact, that was the path that she took. <laughs> Uh, she continued to date other guys, and she promptly moved me to that friend zone category. And so that was a fun season for my life. And uh, so, and so uh, but she would have these arguments with God walking across campus. God, why would you uh, let me meet him now? I've got so much life to experience. I've got so many more guys to date. And so I kind of hung out in the peripheral for a while. I went to CSU and uh, went, right about the time when I was like, okay, it's time for me to move on.org and uh, just um, go for someone else. Uh, she would, would just like barely bring me back from the edge of the friend zone. And this happened for, for a while. But nonetheless, I say all that because we, it wasn't like we were like, hey, how are we just going to honor the Lord in our relationship and in our marriage? It's not what happened. 
And yet God has been gracious to us as we continued to date and and began to move out of the friend zone and and say, maybe there's something here. I I had the opportunity to uh, go to Okinawa, Japan, and for a summer uh, be an intern there and live with the Arliskas family. They were uh, uh, Christian family missionaries there serving Marines on Okinawa. And for all summer, for the first time in my life, I'm in a Christian home and a Christian atmosphere. And I'm seeing a a father relate to uh, his children and a husband to his wife and, and I see them sin against each other and I see them repent and, and all this, I am just drinking from a fire hose all summer long and, and I said this, this is what life is, is, is meant to be about. The, the family was flourishing, the kids were flourishing, the wife was alive in her giftings and I said that, I, I want to learn more about that and so God was gracious to us. He, he sent other mentors into our lives and, and we just began to say, what does it look look like to honor God in our marriage. I say all that because uh, we are all being discipled by the world. We're all being discipled on what we should think about husbands and wives and gender roles and whatever you watch, whatever TV shows, whatever music you listen to, whatever movies, those are all communicating something to you. And in our culture, like in Ephesus, when Paul writes this message, he'll later say in chapter 5, be wise. In fact, I'll show it here. He says, Uh, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And and Paul is showing, hey, the air that we're breathing is antichrist. It it isn't uh, moving us into fuller relationships. It isn't moving us into flourishing with God and with other people. It is is telling us something else. And we live in in a culture that is increasingly turning its away, turning its back on God. And increasingly confused about what, what marriage looks like. Increasingly confused what, what a man is and a woman is. If you sign up for a Facebook account today, you'll have 71 options to choose when it comes to your gender. Now, most of us, wouldn't, we read about 65 of those and we would say, I don't understand the rest of, you know, all 65 of those. But it, it's just this mass confusion. And uh, if we aren't careful if we don't say, no, I'm going to go back to what God says. And, and because God is the designer and creator and is for our good and for our flourishing, then we will just be caught up with the world. And, and we'll say things like, well, you Christians that believe that, you're on the wrong side of, of history, whatever that means. You're, you're backwards. You're, you're chauvinistic. You, you don't know what, how it really works in the world. And so... Um, For all of our hand-wringing and all of our fretting about the downward spiral of our culture, though, Ephesus was far, far worse. Far worse. First century Ephesus, what they worshipped there is Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine. And the way you worship the god of wine is you got drunk with wine and then you participated in the cultic temple uh, sexual orgies and, and all those things going on in the temple. And this was just the culture. And that's what was on what, what people talked about around the water cooler on Monday morning. How was your Dionysus worship this week? Oh, it was amazing. Let me tell you about it. Like this was the depravity uh, 
marriage was just a social institution. Women were seen kind of as a necessary evil to propagate the population. But otherwise, they were not, it wasn't a love relationship. It wasn't something that you honored your wife. In fact, if you were, a, 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 if you were a, someone like a, a Socrates or, or a Plato, you would have young boys to satisfy you sexually. This was the atmosphere in which the, a young church was trying to grow and thrive. And Paul has said, let the gospel rescue you, let the gospel shape you, and let the gospel be a light to the city of Ephesus. And Paul is going to do that for us as well. And so don't fret. He's going to ground us in two things. He's going to ground us in creation, and he's going to ground us in the gospel, in Christ. So uh, I will kind of work backwards through this passage, but first in, in chapter uh, five and towards the end, he says this, remember the gospel. That's what he starts with. He says, be imitators of God, just as God does, did this. And he, he begins to unpack it for them. And then in verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So at this point, Paul is talking to the whole Ephesian church, and he says the Christian relationship should be one of serving the other, just like Christ did, who didn't come to be served but to serve. So submit to one another. Then he says, now how that works itself out in marriage is different. We have different roles. We have a distinction of gender, but the, the general principle is the same, that we submit to one another out of love. And first, though, he says, remember the gospel. And that's what we've said this whole series. I love what Tim Keller, how Tim Keller puts it in his book, um, The Meaning of Marriage. He says this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now, if that's true, that should radically change the way we think about and live out of our marriages. So he's going to talk about what it looks like for, for a wife to submit to her husband and what, what it looks like for husbands to, uh, to follow Christ and, and submit and serve their wives. But uh, at the end of that, he says two things, and that's where I want to start with. He says, he quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. For, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying marriage is perplexing. Marriage is profound. The, the, word, the Greek word there is mega mysterion. You can translate it yourself. It's a mega mystery. Marriage is a mega mystery. Like it is, it is that place where uh, the, we, we love people the most, and it's also that place where, because of our sin, we hurt and wound people the most. It's this mystery, right? And marriage is hard. And so as we remember the gospel, the first thing I want to say is there are no perfect marriages in this room. And some of you had arguments on the way to church. And, and that's part of the mystery and, and, and part of how we've got to just realize, man, Lord, we need you. We need you in this. We want to follow you, but we need you. And so this mystery, Paul grounds it in two things, creation and Christ. So let's look back at creation real quick. In Genesis chapter 1, 
Verse 1, the most profound sentence in, in the entire Bible in the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if that is true, man, that, that, that sets us on a whole different path than what the world would say. If that's true, if God is the creator, then he has the authority, he has the dominion, he has uh, every right to do what he sees fit. But because he's a good God, he makes good things. And so six times in Genesis chapter one, it'll say God created this and it was good. He created this and he saw that it was good. Six times he does that. And then in chapter two, he, uh, well, before I get to chapter two, at, on the sixth day, he creates uh, man and women. He creates Adam and Eve in his image. And so verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So together, male and female, they image God, which right away says that there is not a distinction in value, but both are necessary to image God in the world. And then in chapter two, it kind of unpacks how that creation of Adam and Eve uh, took place. But in, in verse 18, uh, it says this in chapter 2. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, this is the first time in the Bible where something's not good. Six times now, it is good, it is good, it is good. But now Adam's by himself, and God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him or corresponding to him or that fits him. Now that word helper in our culture means like, oh, you're, you're just a helper? That's like secondary. He, he could do it himself, but maybe you could help him. Like, but that's not what this word implies. The word is etzer. It's a Hebrew word that's most often used of God being our helper. So God is our etzer. So if God is our helper, certainly this is not a, a, a statement of value. This is not saying uh, the woman is less because she's the helper. No, God is our helper. And now God is in his good gift and mercy to humanity. He's creating man and woman a helper and so God puts Adam to sleep, and he, uh, out of his side, out of the flesh, takes, takes the bone and creates Eve, and then wakes Adam up, and Adam wakes up to a, with a worship song on his lips. This at last, he says, at last, or finally, God says. He's been dealing with all these animals this whole time, but now he's got a woman. And so that's what he says, at last. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were, not were both naked and not ashamed. And so Paul quotes that. And when Paul talks about gender roles and distinction, what, what he most often does is he quotes creation. The reason he's doing that is because he's like, I don't want anyone to come back, come along and say, uh, that's just a cultural thing. That's just for that time or that place or that culture. He says, no, before there was any culture, before there was any ever, ever a government, God created and he created it good. 
for their flourishing. And yet we know what happens in chapter 3. Sin enters into the world. And as sin enters into the world, it twists and mars all of creation. And it, and it twists and mars our marriage relationships. And so to the woman in verse 16, the second half, he says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's going to be a twisting in the marriage relationship. There's going to be a jealousy for, for the wives to take the, the role of husbands. And there's going to be husbands abusing their, their God-given role to love and serve their wives. And they're going to be oppressive in their speech and in their physicality or whatever means sin is going in to enter the world. But praise be to God for the gospel. Jesus is going to rescue and redeem that. And Paul says from the very beginning... From the very first moment God instituted marriage, he had the church in mind. He had Christ in mind. Verse 32 of chapter 5. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says, the reason you're married is to display Jesus to the world. And the way we do that is different, but it's for our flourishing and it's for our good. Let's look at that. First, he addresses wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Again, it's, it's not because your husbands are worthy of your submission. It's not because your husbands are great guys. Your husband may be a dirtbag. But uh, Paul's uh, appeal to them is it's not because of your husband. It's because of Jesus. So as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also, see these comparisons, as and so also, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So Paul unpacks what in our day and age is a very unpopular message, but uh, again, seen through a gospel lens, this is for uh, our flourishing and for our good. And I'm going to let my wife unpack that passage for you in a moment, just a little bit more, but I'm going to move on to the husband's. Because the wives get three verses and the husbands get six. And I will tell you right now, as unpopular as verses 23 through 25 might be in our culture, verses 25 through 26 or 30 are far more difficult to achieve. We need Christ's help in this, men. Look at what Paul says to the husbands. How are the husbands going to display Christ in the church? He says this, husbands, love your wives. Again, this is a radical message in first century Ephesus. And, and really, this type of love that Paul is talking about is a radical message in 21st century Parker. Husbands, agape your wives. The word he chooses isn't just erotically love your wives or brotherly love your wives. He's saying agape love your wives. Agape love is the kind of love that is volitional. It chooses to love no matter what. It's not emotional, though it's not separate from emotion. It's not going to ride the waves of their emotions. Do I feel in love or did I fall out of love? It says, I will love you no matter what. It's covenantal love. It means no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve and, and a sacrifice to you. And then Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the connection is, husbands, you're going to display Christ to the world as you agape, sacrificially, volitionally, covenantally love your wife. 
and he gave himself up. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. That's what Christ did for the church. And then he says in verse 28, in the same way. So just as Christ saw the church in desperate need and and came and served and loved and, and sought the flourishing of his bride, the church, he says, husbands, in the same way, you should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the body does the church because we are members of his body. So husbands, act like Christ. Just be Jesus. <laughs> now, what you should hear immediately is, I can't be Jesus. Like, that's, that's part of the whole point of the gospel. None of us are doing this perfectly. In fact, probably none of us are doing this very well. And yet, Paul says, this is how you are to love your wife. This is how you are to love and serve your family. You are to see to it that she is flourishing in all of her gifts and passions and skills. You are to see that your family raises up in the knowledge of the Lord. And you are to uh, sacrifice for them. They get theirs first, and then you can have your time. Husbands should go to bed tired because they work all day, and then they should come home and, and serve and sacrifice for their family. That's That's our calling. That's our role. And we can't do it in ourselves. So we have to remember the gospel. Jesus, I'm, I'm terrible at this. Would you work your life in me? Would you help me to love my wife and my children? Well... He'll go on to uh, give some instructions to children because we're talking about families. He says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right and it's for your flourishing Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So um, he's first saying, children, this is how you uh, live out of uh, a gospel centrality. You come under your parents' authority. Parents, you're the authority of your children. You're not their friends. And then there's only two verses in the entire New Testament that have specifically to do with how, how to parent children. And they're both directed at fathers. We live in a culture that uh, so often abdicates the raising of children to the mothers. Uh, But the New Testament says, fathers, I'm going to address you on this. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Romans chapter 14 says that we will give an account to God for the roles we play. And husbands and fathers, you will give an account to God. Did you, did you agape love your wife? Did you serve her? Did she flourish? Was her holiness made possible because of the atmosphere you provided in your home? I'll tell you, if you've ever had to say to your wife, hey, the Bible says you should submit, then you're doing it wrong. If you've had to, if you felt like you needed to say that, then then you're not doing your part. If we're insofar as we're concerned of is the other person doing their part, we're missing the whole point. The whole point is our service is unto the Lord, and so we seek the flourishing of our wives and their gifts and their passions. 
and their, their, their freedom to become the women God has created them to be. Now, before we close, I, I do want to invite my wife up here, and, and I have a question for you. Let me remember the question. You got the microphone there? Okay, so, um, yeah, I was just going to say, um, as, as a wife and as someone who's counseled a lot of women and uh, has grown up in the cultural era that I described earlier, uh, share whatever you want, but also how, how do you communicate these countercultural truths? Well, I want to start by saying um, we at Redemption Parker don't shy away from the tough topics, do we? <laughs> this is our eighth week, and I think every week we've maybe chewed on some stuff, tough stuff in Scripture, but it is the Word of God, and we don't want to pick and choose uh, what we're going to focus on as a church. And I know that these are tough passages, especially if this is your first week visiting us. You're probably like, well, that eighth week, that's nice. Um, but anyway, as as a people of God that treasure and value the Word of God, we want to look at the whole Word of God, and we want to interpret these passages in light of all of Scripture. We want to look at the entirety of God's Word when we're interpreting what do these passages say. And as Mark mentioned, we have four daughters. Um, three of them are here. And I... I feel like I am a strong woman wanting to raise strong women. Part of my task every day is, is teaching my girls their strength, how to see who God made them to be. And so much of what Mark has already said, and I don't want to repeat it, but encouragement for my soul and encouragement for other women is what we see in both creation and in the Trinity. And what we see in creation is that God did create us different. We're divinely designed to be different. So when I talk to my girls every day about who they are and who God made them to be, I, I want them to flourish as women, as strong women, to celebrate how the Lord knit them together uniquely in who they are. And they are each very different women, each with different giftings, different passions. But God made them that way, and it's good. It's something that they can celebrate, embrace, and thrive in. And, then, and, we, and we see that in the way God created Adam and Eve, and we see that around us. We know that in creation, we're divinely designed to be different, and that's a good thing, not something to be um, avoided, not something to change. And then in the Trinity, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are each equal in value. Each are worthy of our praise, worthy of our honor, but they each have a different role. The, the role of the Father is not the same as the role of the Son, and it's not the same of the Holy Spirit, but none is less valuable than the other. So I see in the Trinity an example for myself and an example for my girls that they're, they're, the Lord has created equal value but different roles, and that's a good thing. His creation is a good thing. So when I think about being a gospel-centered wife, as we're in this series on gospel-centeredness, we purposely started Redemption Parker with a gospel-centered series because the gospel is preeminent in all things. Marriage, gender, families, the gospel is preeminent in all things. So when I think about being a gospel-centered wife, and when I encourage other women to be gospel-centered wives, my mind always goes to Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages, where the Lord describes that Jesus, who in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he condescended himself and came to earth. So God, Jesus, left heaven and came to earth, put on flesh, as we sang, as we acknowledge in the Apostles' Creed, and as we sang in our worship songs this morning, put on flesh, made himself low, and not only that, but willingly went to the cross and died in my place. So when I think about the truth of Philippians chapter 2, and I think God left heaven, he did not grasp his honor 
in heaven, but left heaven to earth to die on my behalf. And he asks me, even here in Ephesians 5, he says, imitate Christ, be an imitator of Christ. So if Jesus can submit to the Father, if Jesus can leave heaven and die and serve me, then I can serve my family. I can serve my husband. I can submit to my husband. I can serve my children. And I think about being a gospel-centered wife or gospel-centered mom or gospel-centered friend, gospel-centered community member, whatever. Philippians 2 speaks to that. And so my encouragement for women who are like me and struggle with not leading everything around them, it is Philippians 2. It is we can do this because Jesus did this. And Jesus empowers us. Like Mark said, husbands, you can't do what God asks you to do without the power of the Lord. And wives, we can't do what the Lord asks us to do without his power either. So that's, that's my encouragement to myself, to rehearse the gospel to myself, to my daughters, to other women, to remember Philippians 2. And, and just to wrap it up, um, that role is not one of, um, of being a doormat. I think we we equate submission with being a doormat. But that is not what the Lord is calling us to be. Clearly, when we look at all of Scripture, God is, has created women and has said they are good. And we look at Scripture and see all the giftings that he has given all of us, including women. And his, his call is for us to walk, walk in those giftings. And so I want to equip my daughters daily, and I want to remind myself daily to walk in those strengths and to run the race that the Lord has marked for me. Not my sister's race, not my friend's race, not her race, but run the race that the Lord has marked out for me by his strength for his glory. So the gospel tells us uh, that God is radically committed to our good, and uh, it cost him his son. And then because he's radically committed to our good, we can trust him even when it doesn't uh, seem comfortable to trust him. Uh, the gospel also tells us that uh, he has good plans and purposes for our flourishing and for our joy. And so as we live out of those good plans, we do that. The other thing is, I would just say this, as we can acknowledge in our culture, as it increasingly goes away from this model, and increasingly goes to confusion and, and to um, all the things that our culture is saying, in the darkness, light shines brightest. And your marriage, as it displays Christ and the church, will be a bright light to your neighbors and to your friends. Open your home. Let people come in like, like I had the opportunity to do and just see what does it look like to, for a husband and wife to interact? What does it look like for children in that kind of home? And then finally, I, I want to give one more encouragement to all of us, but specifically to men. I, I want to say be bold. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be passive. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, B, he gives them five, five imperatives. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. I love this one. Act like men. And just in case you, you were confused about that or, or a, a Hollywood, Western kind of stereotype of what that means, he, he clarifies, all, let all that you do be done in love. You want to act like a man? You love like a man. The, the greatest model of being a man the world has ever seen has been Jesus, who gave himself up for us. And so we can't, again, can't do it on our own, but through Christ's help, he'll do that through us. So let me close us in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn our attention to remember the gospel once again at the communion table. God, thank you for your word to us. Uh, God, I thank you for your, your good purposes in our lives, Lord. Help, help right now, I pray that you'd help wives to 
um, see that you are you're good and that they can trust you even if uh, the person that they've married isn't that trustworthy. Um, but Lord, I do pray for flourishing in our marriages. I pray for men that uh, they would uh, see Christ and, and he was not like Adam. He is the better Adam. He was not passive and on the side and meek and quiet. He was a bold as a lion in his love for his church and in the pouring out of his blood. And so, Lord, would that be just on our hearts and minds and spur us on that when we don't want to love our wives and our children that way, may you give us the will to do that. For we need you in all of this, Jesus. We want to glorify and magnify you. And so, Lord, would you use our marriages as a display of Christ in the church to a, a world that is confused and misunderstands. Lord, may they see and t- the gospel through our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.